Hello and welcome to the Week in 60 Minutes. I'm John Connolly, Spectator's News Editor. After Penny Mordaunt was knocked out of the Tory leadership race this week, one of Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss will be the next Prime Minister. Andrew Neil, James Forsyth and Katie Balls will join me to give us the latest on the Tory leadership race. The Tory leadership race has defied expectations. Earlier in the week, one of the contenders, Liz Truss, attacked her competitor Rishi Sunak over his private education. Is there a shifting class happening in the Tory party? I'll speak to Fraser Nelson. Freddie Gray writes in this week's cover piece that Trump is back and is gearing up to run in 2024. But are we ready? He'll be on with Jacob Halbrun. And finally, why is country and western music so popular in Africa? I'll speak to Aidan Hartley. A Spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash TV offer. And why not subscribe to our YouTube channel? Click the red subscribe button at the bottom of the video and tap the bell icon to make sure you never miss an episode. Five leadership hopefuls are whittled down to two this week. Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss will now face six weeks of leadership hustings, where they'll look to win over Tory members to become party leader and prime minister. Which of the two candidates has a better chance? And will the Conservatives be able to come back together afterwards? I'm joined now by Andrew Neil, Spectator's Chairman, James Forsyth, our political editor, and Katie Balls, our Deputy Political Editor. Great. Thank you, Andrew, Katie and James for joining us on Spectator TV. Now, the field in the Tory leadership election has been whittled down to two after Penny Mordaunt was kicked out this week. Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss are now going to the membership for their votes. Um, Andrew, to start us off, um, what do you make of the field so far? Do you think Tory members have been given a good choice between Sunak and Truss? Well, I think most Westminster observers thought it would come down to Richie Sunak and uh, Liz Truss, the right coalescing in the end, slowly, but in the end, the right coalesce around Liz Truss. And in some ways, Richie Sunak is seen as the establishment candidate. There's actually less that separates them than the uh, sound in fury would suggest. Um, and I guess that the debate now between the two will concentrate on economics uh, particularly tax, because in that area there are differences between them. And uh, But I think it won't just be policy, it'll also be character and general attitude. I mean, it is somewhat ridiculous that uh, Liz Truss, who voted to remain in the uh, Brexit referendum, is regarded as the staunch Brexiteer. And Richie Sunak, who voted to leave and had always been a leaver, uh, is regarded with suspicion as a closet remainer. Uh, so I think that is a bit strange, but I think that speaks to Liz Truss positioning herself as the insurgent, therefore Brexiteers are associated with insurgents, and Richie Sunak is more the establishment Conservative candidate, and the Conservative establishment was by and large for remain. So I think that's what is being reflected there. Mm. And, and James, it seems that Rishi Sunak's maybe got a bit of a tricky position now. He doesn't seem to be as popular with members at the moment. He's only got, what, maybe 10 days before the ballots are posted out. I mean, how, how difficult do you think it is for him now to kind of to come out on top over Liz Truss? So it, it is a sprint. Look, he came out top in the parliamentary rounds. But as you say, this round will be more difficult. I think, I think nearly everyone thinks that he starts behind Liz Truss among the members. So the question for him is, what can he do between now and the beginning of August when the ballot papers go out to change minds? And I think 
there's a particular importance now on that on that first BBC TV debate between the two of them on Monday night. I think there's also a uh, particular importance on, on, on what policies Rishi Sunak comes out with. Now, Liz Truss did quite a lot of policy in the parliamentary rounds as she was trying to, to, to as Andrew says, consolidate the right behind, behind her. Rishi Sunak didn't do as much. What does he do now with the members to try and, uh, and show them what kind of prime minister he would be? Because although he has been the chancellor, it's obviously you know, the second most senior job in government, because he has been a minister for quite some time and bound by collective responsibility, there are a whole bunch of subjects where we don't know that much about what he thinks. Now, uh, and having known him for a long time, I think he will want to get across what he thinks on those subjects in the coming days. And Katie, coming from it from the trust sort of camp angle, there, what do you think her strategy will be now? Do you think she's got to sort of play it safe for the for the next week or so, or do you think she has to do a bit more than that? So Liz Truss had the trickiest path to get to the final two in the sense that there were it was I think it was quite hard work the whole way through. She had to have lots of conversations her and her team of Brexiteers for the reasons that Andrew has outlined to try and convince them to back her. Even when she got key endorsements such as Sue Ella Braveman telling her ERG European Research Group backers to back Truss, many of them chose to go to Kemi Badenoch. Um, so it meant she eventually got there, but the focus. Um, and her team was very much on MPs rather than thinking too much about uh, media. She's done her first broadcast interview uh, on Thursday um, of the entire campaign. And that's also because uh, I think what is generally perceived to be one of her weaknesses is media. Um, The first debate was tricky for her. And she is in the position where she is now the front runner now she has made it to the membership stage. She has the most to lose. Now, she has agreed to do at least two debates and there are hustings. But I think, therefore, uh, where Team Trust are going to be most comfortable is putting out her policy ideas, putting out op-eds and actually being quite careful about how much and which media she does. So not so little that she can be accused of hiding, but I think Rishi Sunak is keen and his team are very keen to push him to do a lot of media to try and bounce Liz Truss into doing more. They think the way that Rishi Sunak potentially beats her is by forcing her to do media Liz Truss underperforming and Rishi Sunak overperforming. Um, and, and that's the tactic you're going to see from that side. And Andrew, to stick with the policy for the moment, I mean, you mentioned this a little bit at the beginning, but the two candidates are setting out sort of slightly different economic stalls. I think Sunak wants to, uh, Truss wants to cut taxes straight away. Sunak wants to come to them later after dealing with inflation. Um, do you get the sense that one has a bit more credibility when talking about economics, or do you think there's not much between them at this stage? Um, the, the Richie Sunak has huge credibility uh, when he talks about economics. And, and I say that not actually agreeing with quite a, a lot of what he's done, but he's hugely credible in the matter of economics, whereas you sometimes get the impression that Liz Trust doesn't know what the hell she's talking about. And she talks about the Bank of Japan and uh, uh, about 30 billion already being within the existing envelope of spending. You know, by the time she gets to that 30 billion, it may not be there. Just look at the latest borrowing figures at the, at the moment. That forecast, I think, is shot to hell too. So I, I think that uh, that he has more credibility, but they both have big questions to answer. So. Uh, Liz Truss is the candidate of the right, but she's pushing unfunded tax cuts. Uh, I mean, how right-wing is that? I thought, you know, the right was meant to believe in fiscal conservatism and sound money, uh, and that you had, if you were going to cut tax, you had to cut spending 
or to do what Maggie Thatcher did, cut some tax, income tax, but raise, I mean, she doubled VAT in her first major budget. So, you know, I don't understand when we're already running of what is it, a two trillion plus national debt and still a big deficit, how it's that right wing and, uh, and conservative with a small aura capital C to, uh, to wish to basically print money or borrow money to cut taxes. I mean, even uh, Jeremy Corbyn wasn't proposing that. And I think that uh, on uh, um, Mr. Sunak's side, uh, he's got some questions too, because at a time when the forecasts were beginning to show that the economy was slowing down this year, and we've known that almost since the March budget now, the Bank of England then the forecast then showed, said it would slow down substantially as the year went on. And monetary policy was being tightened with the end of the quantitative easing and interest rates beginning to rise at last. So monetary policy is tightening. Was it really wise to then tighten fiscal policy the way Richie Sunak did and to increase taxes going into a recession? Is that really wise? Is that, is that really conservative either? And of course, he's had to roll back on some of that by coming back on the national insurance to lift people uh, out, of, uh, lift the threshold up and to increase corporation tax, but say there'll be all sorts of allowances. So I don't think he's covered himself in glory either. And I think both of them have rather serious economic questions uh, uh, to, to answer in the debate over the next couple of weeks. I mean, James, do you think that's why Sunak isn't doing as well with the membership now? That sort of that hit to his economic credibility, if you say. I mean, traditionally, the party are of sound money. You'd think if um, someone's preaching fiscal responsibility compared to the last candidate, that they'd be doing particularly well. But but that's not the case. I mean, do you think that's why? I think it is essentially about whether the Tory party are still a fiscally conservative party or not. Liz Truss makes much of the fact that she opposed the national insurance increase in Cabinet. But she didn't oppose the policy that it was meant to pay for. And I mean, there is a real danger here for the Tories, which is if, if the state can step in so that no one needs to sell their home to pay for their social care costs, as Boris Johnson says will be the case, and you don't need to, to raise any money to fund that, then you know, A, is that credible? And B, isn't there a risk that the Tories simply get outbid by Labour? That Labour tell people that they can have all sorts of things. And look, the Tories have told you, we don't need to raise taxes to pay for these things. Mm. And Katie, how do you think Truss is going to respond to that? I mean, I know, especially on that sort of charge of fiscal responsibility, I know she mentioned some of this in her interview with you. Yes, and in the interview, which was the, the first uh, sit-down print interview she did, the contest, she laid out her pitch and, you know, I put to her, well, you, you are effectively saying you want to borrow for tax cuts. Now, her response is that economic growth is the answer and that will mean that you'll get lots of things. But you're, you're seeing more and more people saying, well, what does this mean for inflation? Um, which economists are you listening to? And, it, and it's quite a narrow pool she has to point to. So I think there will be scrutiny. But I think one of the problems with Rishi Sunak is he just doesn't sound very positive in his message. So um, I, I've spoken to MPs uh, who ultimately are a little bit sceptical of some of Liz Truss's plans, to put it mildly, but they worry that the way Rishi Sunak has pitched himself in this contest by saying, you know, don't believe in fairy tales, which initially worked quite well for him because he was at the centre of, of the debate. All the other candidates were almost being pitched against him in the, in the early stages in these conversations about cutting taxes. Um, now just reads as though he, he is almost, uh, just wants to raise taxes, which isn't what he's saying. He's saying he will cut taxes in the medium term. Um, but I think it's quite hard 
when you're going off a candidate like Liz Truss to land that message um, in, and so far and what he's done. And the other problem Rishi Sunak has is there is a group who oppose him not because of his economic message. Um, they oppose him because of Boris Johnson, many of whom back Liz Truss. So Jacob Rees-Mogg, Nadine Doris, um, and while Liz Truss says she's not gonna get engaged in blue and blue, you don't have to look far in her key supporters who stand behind her in photo ops to find those who are quite willing to go on the record and criticize him. So I think that Rishi Sunak's challenge is one, the economy, and how that's landing with the membership, but, and also his past record. But two, I think you keep hearing Liz Truss talk about loyalty. And I think they do think that where Rishi Sunak can, uh, you know, is experience damaged relations with the membership is the fact that he resigned and they think they can make hay from that. Mm. And Andrew, do you think that sort of association with Boris Johnson for both the candidates is going to be a bit more of a problem, not just with the membership, but when then with the wider electorate, whoever gets elected, as in, you know, both served in Boris Johnson's cabinet for a long time. Do you think they're sort of going to be sort of almost tainted with Boris Johnson when they finally run against Labour? No, I don't think so. I, I think because either of them would be so different from Boris Johnson uh, that people will come to think it's a new government. You know, jo John Major, who took over from Margaret Thatcher in 1990, he was so different from Margaret Thatcher. Uh, that people did think it was a new government. So when it came to the general election in 1992, when Mr. Major was up against Neil Kinnock, the, uh, and Labour, you know, time for a change is the most powerful political slogan in any election campaign in the world. But, but when it came to the 92 election, two things happened. One, people thought there was already a new government in, the poll tax had gone, John Major was so different. And secondly, people weren't so sure about uh, Neil Kinnock, whether he was really ready for prime time. He had uh, come on by leaps and bounds, but there were still huge doubts as to whether he was really ready to be prime minister. So as a result, Mr. Wade Major won a working majority. Now, if the Tories pick the right leader this time and they make a success of it and the economy starts to grow again and the cost of living crisis is behind us rather than in front of us, Either Liz Truss or Richie Sunak will so, seem so different from Boris Johnson that people once again will think, hey, there's a new government already. And uh, I think a lot of people will have uh, different doubts, but the same degree of doubts about Keir Starmer uh, this time round as they had about Neil Kinnock in uh, 1992. So I think there's still uh, all to play for, but whoever wins has got to do it right. They have, they've got a short window now to get it right. They need to be seen to be different. They need to stamp their mark on it. They need to get some discipline back into this party again to make it look like a governing party rather than a kind of substrata of the Oxford Debating Union. So I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a tough one to do, but by, I think that it is by no means certain that whoever wins is going to lose at all. I think the Conservatives still have all to play for. And Keir Starmer has still got to put his mark on British politics. Mm. And, and James, it is a big task ahead of whoever takes over, though, with the economy. I mean, is there something that there might be a bit of a poison chalice now with you know, inflation above 9% this week, for example? Yeah, look, the new Prime Minister is going to inherit three crises, uh, uh, an, an economic crisis, an energy crisis. Just look at what's happening this week with Nord Stream 1, with, with the Russians turning the gas back on to Germany, but only at a kind of trickle. Um, and obviously, you've got a war in a war in Europe going on. 
Um, and put on top of that, there is obviously going to be a lot of rancour and bitterness left in the Tory party from the fact that the party has changed leader three times in six years. Just look at how Theresa May couldn't bring herself to clap Boris Johnson as he departed from Prime Minister's questions on, for the last time on Wednesday. So it, it is obviously going to be a very difficult job for whoever comes in. But I think Andrew's analysis is right, is one of the reasons I think the Tories did ultimately decide to change leader is that the next election, it's an uphill struggle, but it is still winnable for them. This is not like 1995, when it was quite clear that Tony Blair was going to win, and the only question was how big his majority would be. This time round, I think that, that, you know, but there is still a, a chance for the Tories of winning. And Katie, on those blue and blue attacks, do you think they're going to be a bit of a problem for the Tory party afterwards? I mean, there's reports today that Truss is going to be stepping up the attacks on Sunak via proxies and so on. I mean, how can the party come back together after this, do you think? Yeah, I mean, clearly when Labour have been watching the debates recently, they've found plenty of attack lines they can use going forward. But then, I mean, I think things can change very quickly. Um, now, I think if we're looking ahead to what's going to be coming up in the next few weeks, I would expect there to be a lot more blue on blue. I think that Liz Truss and Rishi don't ultimately decide to step away from doing a third debate ahead of the final ballots. But that was partly because MPs were being really turned off by how vicious it had become between the pair. And it wasn't really advantageous for either of them to, to go for that. I don't think they'll be able to restrain themselves too much going forward. And I think it's an interesting one. Speaking to senior Tories, I said, you know, well, who do you think is the best place to win an election? Um, who do you think is the best place to lead the government? And actually, often you get different answers. Um, so in terms of uniting the party after this bruising leadership contest, which we, I think we can safely presume is going to become more bruising um, before it gets better. Um, actually, Liz Truss, I think, is seen as someone who perhaps be able to lead the government more easily, partly just because there's so much venom in certain quarters of the party at Rishi Sunak amongst the Boris Johnson loyalists, um, some of which I don't think is justified. Um, but that is just they've decided that this is a the person they're going to blame for lots of what has happened. And that would make it very hard, I think, for him in terms of the day-to-day, -day, have you really careful about how he did that. But then the same people who say this say, well, but when it comes to the election, we'd rather have Rishi Sunak. We think that he would fare better with the general public. And the polling points to this. And this is why it's going to be a very bumpy period, no matter who takes over when it comes to those two key challenges. Mm. And Andrew, on that electability question, I mean, for all his faults, Boris Johnson did do very well in the north of England in you know, areas we're calling the Red Wall at the last election. Do you think either of the candidates can take on that mantle and sort of construct the same electoral coalition that, that he did? No, I don't think they can, not to the same extent. But then I don't think Boris Johnson could have repeated that act to the extent that he, he succeeded in 2019. I think that that December 2019 election now looks uh, sui generis. It was a, it was a particular coming together of various electoral forces, of which Brexit was by far the most important, but Jeremy Corbyn was also very important too. And suddenly all these red wall seats began to fall uh, uh, the conservative way, helped by having Boris Johnson uh, as they, and they lost all these seats. I think that if Mr. Johnson had stayed and was taking the Tories into the next election, he, he would have lose a number of these seats. He wouldn't hold on to them all. I'm not saying there'd be a wipeout, but he wouldn't hold on to the extent uh, that he has because Brexit is not the issue it was, except outside the chattering classes who remain obsessed with it. Uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn is no more as a leader of the opposition. Um, and Boris Johnson ha had remained an incredible vote 
generating machine, but he was now generating votes among anti-Tories, motivating them to go out and vote against the Tories. And that's what happened in the by-elections. So he was a reason to vote against the Tories rather than, as in December 2019, to vote for the Tories. So I think that it'll be much more difficult. Now, in their own ways, they're both northerners. Now, obviously, Richie Sunak is very much a southerner, but he, you know, he represents uh, William Hague's old constituency, beautiful constituency in Yorkshire. It's a very northern constituency, affluent northern. Liz Truss, as he leads Lass, uh, went to uh, a comprehensive there, not not the sink school she's made out uh, it to be, but actually she was brought up in a rather pleasant bourgeois leafy suburb and the school that she went to was actually quite a high performer. It could explain why she got to Oxford uh, there. So they've both got northern uh, angles that they can play, but I don't, I just don't think that anybody, now look, there is a long-term trend of which the what happened in December 2019 was a massive jump in that direction. I think that uh, working class and lower middle class voters in the Midlands and the North do now tend to vote conservative, whereas white collar, more middle class, more bourgeois, metropolitan voters now tend to vote Labour. Uh, and that trend's not going, to, not going to change. You see equivalent trends in the United States that are upping the whole demography of elections now. I mean, the hue, I mean, I've just come back from the United States. The huge change there is this massive move of Hispanic voters to the Republicans. I mean, who would have thought that? Just as who would have thought that all these northern towns would have gone to the conservatives? They, some of them never had before. Some of them hadn't for generations. So there are longer term movements in play. But I think the Tories, whoever leads them, will have to reconcile that they won't do quite as well in the Red Wall as they did in 2019. Brilliant. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Katie. And thank you, James. Class and background seem to have become one of the main topics of conversation in the Tory leadership race. The contest has been the most diverse in history. Kemi Bandak was born in Nigeria. Rishi Sunak is the son of a pharmacist born to Punjabi parents, but went to school at the exclusive Winchester College. Liz Truss is the daughter of academics and went to a Leeds comp. There she was awarded fewer opportunities than Sunak, she says. How important is class and background to voters nowadays? To discuss, I'm joined by The Spectator's editor, Fraser Nelson. Fraser, thank you for joining us on Spectator TV. Um, I mentioned in the intro there about Truss attacking Sunak over his education. I mean, what role, what role do you think class has had in this sort of Tory leadership race? And what, and what role do you think it will have as, as we go on now? I think Tories as a species are a bit paranoid about social class. They do tend to end up electing Etonians as, as prime ministers. And now you've got, rather than Etonian, a chap from Winchester, Rishi Sunak. And it seems that Liz Truss is trying to use that against him by betraying herself as a kind of salt-of-the-earth, comprehensive um, girl. Now, this, of course, has got quite a few problems. For a start, Liz Truss's comprehensive was a pretty good school. It's produced four MPs. It's one of the most best-performing schools in England. Um, I've also got a feeling that most voters would see them as being roughly the same sort of upper-middle-class, uh, political-class Oxford graduate, um, having contest over which one is the poorer. So it would seem like a sort of bad Tory version of, of, of a three-Yorkshireman sketch, and uh, not very convincing. I'm not sure how much this resonates in the wider public. If people cared that much 
about there being posh prime ministers, then Boris Johnson wouldn't have won the Red Wall in the way that he did. But in Westminster, it's still a big delineation between state and private. And Liz Truss was trying to say to the MPs, as she might continue to say to the members, that Rishi Sunak uh, might look a little bit uh, different to your sta standard issue Tory establishment figure, but fundamentally he's cut from the same upper class cloth. Mm, I mean, that seems particularly unfair as well, doesn't it, considering Sunak's own parents, one's um, a GP, one was a pharmacist. I mean, yeah, do you think he's been getting a bit too much flack for his sort of wealth now rather than his background? I haven't really seen that much flag. He's been getting some flag in social media. There was a clip from him um, about 20 years ago where he was talking about the friends which he had. Um, here's the clip. I have friends who are aristocrats, I have friends who are upper class, I have friends who are, you know, working class, but I'm not working class. Now, of course, he's been teased there for saying that he didn't have, correcting himself and that he didn't have working class friends. But then again, that's because he actually appreciates that working class has got a meaning. And unless he was telling the truth, he ought not to pretend otherwise on television. So I actually see that as an unusual self-awareness and um, a sign of honesty from Rishi Sunak. Uh, but I really don't know how many voters care about that. Voters want a competent prime minister, somebody who will get them out of the trouble which the, current, the country is currently in. And I think that is going to matter way more than where either of them went to school. Mm. I mean, you say that. Well, that in terms of quality of candidates, both did PPE at Oxford this time. Do you think, uh, do you think that says anything about the race? Uh, look, I guess some people might say they would have hoped they would have gone for a slightly more ambitious degree um, and not a Mickey Mouse degree like PPE. But um, then again, a lot of aspiring politicians are lured into that course thinking it will, they'll come out. And it's depressing just how many people on both Labour and the Tory benches have got that degree. Uh, and I guess, to me, that underlines the, that both of them, despite where they went to school, nonetheless came out of the same kind of Oxford sausage machine. Now, that doesn't make them um, bad people. Rishi Sunak has got an incredibly uh, high-achieving career behind him. He was, um, he was a multimillionaire in his own right. Um, if he could walk out of politics tomorrow and go back into finance in a heartbeat. Um, but again, I think it comes down more to whether you trust either of them to um, do a change of government, to be able to get taxes down from the 74-year high and manage the country uh, a bit better than um, Boris Johnson, who of course was a classicist in Oxford, managed it when he was Prime Minister. Mm. Do, you think, I mean, do you think this sort of decrease in the salience of class is going to become a bit of a problem for Labour as well? Because, you know, they've made great hay in the past about the sort of Etonian cabinets and Prime Ministers, and that sort of seems to be fading away. I mean, are they going to have to come up with something new there? Well, they are in a way sharpening their attack line, and that Keir Starmer is saying he would abolish the charitable status of private schools always a divisive question in British society. But I don't really think they're going to be attacking the Tories for coming out of the Oxford political machine. I mean, Keir Starmer could try to do that. He went to Oxford, as did his shadow chancellor, Rachel Reeves. Um, his equalities minister, Annalise Dodds, also went to Oxford, as did his education secretary, um, Bridget Phillipson. So it's kind of Oxbridge wars here between these two parties. And I'm not quite so sure that Labour is in a position to say that these Tories are all coming out from, from the same place. Whatever is true for Tories right now is pretty much true for the Labour Party. And when they have tried to use class war previously, it just hasn't washed. Gordon Brown tried this 
quite a lot, and it just leaves the public cold. It's an obsession here in our little postcode in Westminster, but beyond it, not so much. Mm. And do you think, so you mentioned all the candidates there sort of come from the same sort of social milieu. I mean, are we seeing sort of a triumph of the middle class across the political parties now to the, to the sacrifice of the working and upper class? Well, it needn't necessarily have been this way. Had Kemi Badenach still been in the running, you have in her somebody who went to, you know, unlike Liz Truss, a pretty un- badly performing um, state six form. She went worked at McDonald's and then worked her way up from there. Uh, but even then, I think that would have made her exotic in Westminster circles. But it was more her directness that set her apart from the other candidates. I do think that when you look at the, um, you know, the, the, the leadership candidates in both Labour and the Tory party, you do see a distinct lack of people from non-professional backgrounds, people who didn't. And I look back and I think, take Sajid Javid, for example. Now, he was somebody who almost didn't finish school. He was all set to leave school at 16, and he would have done had it not been for the um, encouragement of a tutor who gave him free lessons to help him get into a sixth form from then on to um, Exeter University and from then on to finance where he became a multimillionaire. And I think it's the Sasha Javid story that's underrepresented in British politics. So often debates about equality all descend down to one question, who gets into Oxford. Uh, you can understand why that is an obsession given how many of both front benches themselves went to Oxford. Uh, but, and David Lammy, is, is, he's almost obsessed with them trying to find out the socioeconomic background of Oxbridge graduates. But in fact, Oxford and Cambridge will let in peop- about the same proportion of private school kids as get top results in A-levels. That isn't really the problem. The problem is in wider in the state schools. Who finishes school in the first place? Who is deprived of their educational rights during lockdown? Uh, there is such a massive equalities question to ask, which goes far beyond uh, the reindeer games of those who are groomed for the British elite. By the way, it doesn't make any of these people bad people. It doesn't mean they're any less able to serve the country. But when you do look at the educational background, it's nonetheless the politics is, to perhaps an unhealthy degree, the plaything of those who have uh, been prepared for it from their teenage years. I think I would like, I certainly would like to hear a lot greater diversity of voices and perspectives. It's not really about social class, it's just about to reflect the fact that there's all sorts of trajectories in this country. Quite often we talk about young people and graduates as being the same thing. So we think, you know, young people with tuition fees, but forgetting the fact that half of young people don't go to university. And I think a lot more attention should be put onto them. One of the many questions that we're not really hearing debated during this Tory leadership campaign, and I'm not sure will be debated after it either. Mm. I mean, you say that phrase, I mean, the Tories do have a nice story to tell, though, don't they? And being, whoever wins this time is either going to be the third female prime minister or the first ethnic minority prime minister after Disraeli. Um, what are they doing right compared to Labour, do you think? I think the Conservatives had David Cameron's A-list 10 years ago. That was definitely a big factor. Um, Cameron really went out of his way to encourage promising candidates from ethnic minorities and women to come into a party to try to mix up the pale male, stale, as you saw it, Tory format. Now that succeeded, but what Cameron didn't realise was that these people coming in were way more Thatcherite than the Tory modernisers, and that what he was planning was planting the seeds for the re-Thatcherisation 
of the Conservative Party. So now you've got Rishi Sunak, who is um, writing the Daily Telegraph um, about how Thatcherite he is. I think he uses Thatcher's name three times in one paragraph right now. And you've got Liz Truss, whose critics say that she's trying to physically look like Thatcher in the way that she, she dresses. But, so you are getting, um, of course, there's no doubt about it, that the Tory leadership race, uh, white men were in the minority. And you're getting um, a Tory party which far more resembles modern Britain now. And I do think that's because David Cameron made all those extra efforts in this election 10 years ago. So he should be proud of that. But I think the proudest achievement is the fact that the Conservatives don't really go around parading their credentials. I don't really think you'll hear Rishi Sunak saying, um, you know, as a man of Indian origins, I think dot, dot, dot. You're not going to hear Liz Truss saying, as a woman, I think dot, dot, dot. You're not going to see anybody driving around in a pink bus as Labour tried to when they were trying to um, go for the female vote. So I think you're getting a move beyond identity politics, but more than that, you're seeing a Conservative Party that defines itself against identity politics, that defines itself against a mentality that would look at a politician and see a skin colour first and a person second. Um, to be able to move beyond that, I think, is quite an achievement. Um, of course, I, 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 st I still go back to what I regard as the massive unanswered questions about poverty and inequality in, in Britain. Um, but when it comes to representation, that is something that the Conservatives are doing far better than Labour. And that's not by accident. That's because of what David Cameron did 10 years ago. So that's the reason they can afford not to talk about it much now, because David Cameron did talk about it back then. Um, so, Fraser, at the beginning there, I mentioned Truss's attack on Sunak about his education. Um, to finish off, do you hope the leadership contest from now on will be a bit more about a battle of ideas rather than a battle of backgrounds and why not being one Yorkshireman in each other? I very much do hope it's going to be about ideas. Ultimately, you play the hands you're dealt in life. The question is how well you play it. Now, um, Liz Truss and Richie Sunak have got so much to discuss about, so much to argue. They've got 10 debates in front of them. But the depressing thing is that the votes papers go out in about 10 days' time. So really, we're going to get a very, very short, meaningful period of debate where Rishi Sunak will have to show us that he is offering more than elegantly managed decline. And Liz Truss will have to show us that she can actually deliver some of the ideas that she is dangling. Very important questions. Neither of them are remotely related to their gender or their skin colour. Thank you, Fraser. Remember, if you enjoy what we do here at The Spectator, you can subscribe to the magazine and to our online content. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash TV offer. Is Trump about to stage a comeback? In an interview last week, he said he had already made that decision. What would a second run for the presidency look like? And would he win? Freddie Gray writes this week's cover piece on Trump's return, and he joins me now alongside Jacob Halbrun, editor of National Interest. Freddie, Jacob, thank you for joining us. Now, Freddie, you write in this week's cover piece about the return of Trump. So I guess the big question to start us off is, do you think he's going to run for, in 2024? Uh, I think he will. Uh, I had my doubts before uh, I started doing this piece, and I, I spoke to a lot of Republicans who know a lot more about it than I do. Um, and the impression I very much got was, uh, why wouldn't he? Um, and if you look at it from Trump's perspective, which is a very weird, unique perspective, I grant you, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Um, he is the obvious front runner. If he stands for the Republican nomination 
It's hard to see how anyone stops him. And then even if he wins the Republican nomination, despite the fact uh, he's obviously a very toxic figure in America, uh, I think he has quite a good chance of uh, winning back the White House. So what, what strikes me as odd is that it's a sort of question that a lot of people, um, because I've written about American politics a bit, a lot of people in this country ask me, is he going to run, is he going to run? But nobody really wants to know the answer, perhaps because uh, in some very strange way we don't actually want to know the answer, which is he probably will and he could well win. Mm. And Jacob, on that, on that question, do you, do you think Trump would win the nomination? And if he goes on and gets the nomination, do you think he'd, um, he'd win? I'm skeptical that he would defeat Biden or another Democrat because he lost the last election pretty decisively. And I think it would be difficult for him to come up with a new roadshow. He's so obsessed with having putatively not lost the last election that he is becoming a bit of a bore, even to some of his followers, according to the latest polling. However, there are two compelling reasons for him to run anyway. One is that he wants to portray any indictment as a political act against him. He could be indicted both by the Justice Department and in Georgia or in New York, or maybe by all three. And the other one is that he really does crave revenge against Joe Biden and the multifarious difficulties that Biden is experiencing now including a lower approval rate than Trump ever experienced as president, means that all the incentives are there in Trump's own mind to give it another go. But you don't think he'd beat Biden in the, in the 1v1 with sort of the economy going down the pan, inflation high, gas prices high and all the rest? It would have to be a, a much worse crisis than it is now. I mean, we, we definitely... Uh, the, the American public has turned on Biden and on the Democrats, but it has not embraced the Republicans either. That's the peculiarity of this situation. If you look at the polling, the Republicans should be doing even better. The public is essentially disenchanted with all of the politicians. However, I do feel it is incumbent upon me to say that Freddie has done a remarkable, even brilliant job for making the case in his new spectator piece for how and why Trump could indeed prevail. And it would be foolish to ignore Freddie's case because people have written off Trump in the past and he has succeeded. So I think Freddie has made a valuable case for Trump. And maybe we should discuss that or Freddie can elucidate upon why he thinks that Trump can indeed triumph. Go ahead, Freddie. <laughs> yeah, all right. Uh, yes, well, I mean, you know, I think uh, Trump um, actually can triumph. And I think the thing that people uh, always overlook is the size and strength of the Trump movement and the extent to which it is wedded to Donald Trump. People don't like it. Uh, it's not always very attractive. Uh, it is extremely divisive and toxic, and a lot of people really hate it. Um, but the fact is, if you drive anywhere in rural America today, you'll still see Trump signs. You'll still see uh, you'll see Trump 2024 signs. Uh, there is a very, very powerful movement in America that is wedded not just to Trump's politics, but to Trump himself. And they do think, probably wrongly 
on most counts that there was something wrong with the 2024, sorry, with the 2020 election. Uh, and people can scream as much as they like about how insane that is, how crazy that is. But the fact is, it's a significant part of the American population, 40 percent, uh, according to some polls, think there was something illegitimate about Biden's victory. The question is, does the 60 percent feel so strongly that Biden was uh, the righteous victor? And do they feel strongly enough to vote for him again uh, to defeat him again? I was going to say what's so interesting about about Freddie's uh, piece is that what what liberals don't want to accept in the United States is that even if they view Trump as authoritarian, that a good chunk of the American public actively wants that from Trump. It, this is not some anomaly. And Biden keeps saying, well, this isn't America. Biden is wrong. This is America. It's a significant slice of it, as Freddie is saying, and you can't simply wish it out of existence. And um, Freddie, we've been talking so far mainly about Trump facing Biden. Do you think are there any sort of um, potential successes to Biden on the Democratic side who Trump would be more afraid of or, or less likely to win? Or do you think it's a pretty, pretty poor crop at the moment as well? Well, uh, it was interesting. So uh, one Republican strategist I spoke to said that if Biden doesn't stand... Uh, then Trump's less likely to stand, uh, which I thought was interesting because the revenge factor would be diminished there. Uh, but then I spoke to some people who, who, who talked to Trump and they said, uh, no, that's rubbish. Uh, one person said, no sane person uh, thinks that Joe Biden is going to stand again. Uh, and then he paused and he said, well, Joe Biden isn't sane, so he might. So I think what you what you what you'll have is uh probably joe biden just because of the lack of other candidates unless his uh sort of old age starts to show so badly in the next two years it just becomes completely untenable um but the point is is that there are no good alternatives kamala harris polls terribly uh, it's generally thought in america that she underperforms with all sections of american society with most sections of american society uh, and then you look at the alternatives. You know, Pete Buttigieg is a name that's often uh, bandied around. But, I mean, look at his run for the presidency last time. He scored 0% uh, in some polls with African-Americans. Uh, th there are no credible alternatives. And there's nobody who can really bring the Democratic Party together. The Republican Party has plenty of its own problems. I don't think they're quite as consequential as the Democratic par Party's problems. Mm. Do you agree with that, Jacob? Uh, do you think it's a fallow field for the Democrats as well? No, I think actually there is quite a bit of ferment in the Democratic Party, as we know. The, the liberals, the progressives are up in arms about Biden's performance. I think Biden has about, if he wants to run for the presidency again, which he clearly does, he probably has about another nine months to turn it around for himself as a party candidate. It, it would not be e easy to unseat him. But the, que the real question would be whether he runs at all. If he does not run, I think I don't, Kamala Harris would obviously run. I don't think she's viable. They need someone like Gavin Newsom from California, someone young, fresh, that the American public is not that familiar with, who has a successful track record.
which which actually California is well run, has budget surpluses, can present itself, which it has historically in the past been for the Republican Party. A, both Nixon and Reagan came from California and were able to portray themselves as a step ahead of the rest of the country, that California was on the forefront of the U.S. Now it has become more associated, obviously, with liberal politics. But if you had a Newsom-DeSantis clash in, the, in 2024, that would represent a generational shift in the United States. The problem that Trump will face is not that different from the one Biden does. We essentially resemble East Germany in about 1988. We are a gerontocracy. Freddie, so Jacob mentioned DeSantis there. I mean, do you think he could, he could pip Trump to the nomination or, or possibly win it if Trump doesn't stand? Well, I think Jacob, with his uh, typical perspicacity, has, has alighted on a very interesting clash which might be emerging uh, between Gavin Newsom in California and Ron DeSantis in Florida. Because uh, if you want to do a kind of Disraelian, uh, you know, two Americas uh, vision of the future, you have it there. You have uh, Newsom, the face of progressive politics, an effective campaigner in many ways, who, despite many problems in his state, still seems to be able to win. Uh, and you have Ron DeSantis, who is, uh, you know, Trump 2.0 in many ways, uh, a sort of a more machine uh, politician version of Trump. Um, and you see already Gavin Newsom taking out ad advertisements in Florida uh, attacking Ron DeSantis. Why would a governor of California do that? There's no real reason to do it, apart from the fact that a lot of uh, rich very often uh, right of center Americans are leaving California and going to Florida because Florida is increasingly seen as California was seen in the 70s and 80s as the sort of the, the, the part of America that is free and, and prosperous. Uh, and so you have that very interesting clash there. My piece uh, in the magazine this week suggests that that clash, or what I'm trying to say is that I'm not sure that clash is quite ready to happen because you still have this enormous towering presence of Donald Trump over American politics. Mm. And when you say there's sort of a general shift, Jacob, um, is the idea that DeSantis would be sort of a new incarnation of Trumpism and possibly more effective? The Republican Party, the apparatus, and a good chunk of the voters are yearning for someone other than Donald Trump. They don't want to blow the next election. They see that the opportunity is ripe to take back not just the House and the Senate in the November midterm elections, but also the presidency in 2024. This is why Pence is already out there on the hustings. Uh, he may be even more active in uh, touring around the United States and meeting with Republicans than DeSantis. DeSantis has raised more money than Trump in recent months. The signs are there that Trump's support is deteriorating. This does not mean that he is not in control of the GOP, which he still is. And that's why Freddie's article offers us a salutary reminder that we shouldn't simply dismiss Trump, but he is experiencing an erosion. And his age, his unpredictability, he just called the Wisconsin Speaker of the House a few days ago to demand 
that he overturn the 2020 election. The man is to some degree simply bonkers and out of control. So it is not surprising that Republicans would want someone like DeSantis, who is far more disciplined than Trump, but espouses many of the same policies and indeed would run to the right of Trump in a primary against him, particularly on the COVID issue. He would attack Trump for having pushed the vaccine as president. And Freddie, you mentioned in your piece, I think, that DeSantis has this sort of same Trumpian ability to shock, um, to set sort of uh, the politics alight, but he's not quite up to Trump's standards yet. Do you, yeah, can you, yeah, what do you think, what do you think is going to happen there? Well, I think he, he doesn't drive people, he, he specialises in, in making the, the left, the progressive left, overreach uh, in a way that's advantageous to him. Uh, he doesn't have Trump's completely unpredictable juju, which is uh, a unique sort of strange phenomenon that nobody quite understands. Uh, I think it's interesting, Jacob, saying that the Santis could attack him from the right. I think in terms of the Republican nomination, that's probably the only way in which you can hurt Trump. In fact, people quite close to Trump suggested this could be his uh, weak spot in many ways, is that particularly on the issues of, of vaccines, Donald Trump wants to take all the credit uh, for Operation Warp Speed and rolling out the vaccination program. But his base is not a, at all comfortable with, with mandatory, vac mandatory federal vaccinations and indeed the vaccine itself. So you could have a sort of, you know, wilder than Trump candidate running against Trump on the right. Can DeSantis do this? I, I think he struggles just because uh, Trump still, despite what Jacob says about fundraising, Trump still is the, the fundraising uh, key to, to Republican efforts. Um, if, if they put out a, an, a mass email without Trump's name on it, uh, they raise very little money. You put Trump's name on it, you raise a lot of money. That may be diminishing, it's true, but it is still so strong uh, that I suspect it will last for another couple of years more at least. Brilliant. Thank you, Freddie, and thank you, Jacob. And finally, why is country music so popular in Africa? Aidan Hartley, the Spectator's wildlife columnist, writes in this week's magazine that African farmers, particularly in the east of the continent, find that their American counterparts have similar lives to their own. To explain, Aidan joins me now. Aidan, thank you for joining us on Spectator TV. Um, you write in the magazine this week about Anglophone Africa's love affair with country and Western music. To start off, can you tell us why, why this genre is so popular there? Uh, it's a... It's a phenomenal fashion that is sweeping particularly Kenya and other parts of Anglophone Africa that would have been ruled by the British. It doesn't really affect Francophone or Lusophone Africa where uh, South American rumba and other types of music, you know, have a tradition. But in Africa, it's been going since Jimmy Rogers uh, came into the continent as a result of uh, phonograph records in the 1920s. And it put down very deep roots amongst both uh, black people and white people um, over the succeeding decades. Um, in South Africa, I write about how the Afrikaners identified, you know, greatly with the kind of melodramas of the lyrics and the songs, and, and they liked the folk tunes. And then in places like uh, Kenya, uh, where my family has been for nearly a century, um, I remember, you know, the older generation, my parents, um, listening to Jim Reeves and, you know, dressing in cowboy hats 
And it seemed to be something that for the whites, potentially it was something that they they've identified with more because they were farmers, because they were cattle keepers, they lived a, a quite a dramatic rural existence. Um, but also it, it, it was something that they could identify with more than what was going on in Europe and uh, urban America, you know, with the rise of counterculture, the Beatles, the 1960s. Um, and so it sort of started from those roots. And these days, it's not just American imports, is it? So there are lots of homegrown African country and Western stars. Is that right? Well, I've been speaking to uh, one of the most famous country singers in Kenya, who is called Sir Elvis. He was named Elvis yeah. at birth. His real name is uh, Elvis Otieno. Um, and he's been playing guitar since the age of six. Um, and he uh, has put out uh, hits here. One of them, I think, is quoted in the magazine called Loving Man. The, these are classic uh, country and Western tunes. Um, when he speaks to me, it's in a, in a Texas drawl. Um, and, and, and the themes will be very familiar to anyone listening to country and Western. Um, at the same time, the, the fact is that the, the classics are still very popular here. Um, I write about how The Gambler by Kenny Rogers is still the most uh, requested song on radio in Kenya. And um, the, the puzzling thing is that uh, the classics st seem still to have an enormous popular currency in the country. I mean, you often hear them on FM radio stations uh, wherever you are in, in Kenya. Um, and to an extent, this is happening in Nigeria and uh, 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 the country formerly known as Swaziland, now called Eswatini. Um, it's not all over Africa, but, but in Kenya, there's such a huge following that uh, a journalist and DJ that I spoke to called uh, Jeff Koinangi, he has a big show that plays every Sunday and he takes his uh, smoking country road show uh, to different provincial towns. And he sings alongside Sir Elvis. And, and they pull in crowds of hundreds and thousands of people sometimes, all of whom turn up in Stetsons and big buckle belts and cowboy boots and denims. Um, and they line dance. And they are devoted to not only modern African country, or even country that is being sung by black Americans like Darius Rucker, but also characters like uh, uh, Denver and Kenny Rogers and Jim Reeves and Dolly Parton, who is a superstar in Kenya. So mm. it's, it's a fascinating phenomenon. I mean, one of the things is that these young people, many of them middle-class urban Kenyans, are spending large sums of money on buying Stetsons online from Arizona. And then they also go to the second-hand clothes markets. Africa really dresses itself in second-hand clothes from the West. Um, uh, something like 4 million tons of second-hand clothes are imported to the continent each year. And in amongst those clothes, you're going to be able to find all sorts of stuff like uh, cowboy shirts and denims, and so when they turn up at these concerts, they're dressed to the nines. Um, you mentioned there a bit earlier about it sort of potentially crossing racial lines. I think one of the people you mentioned in your piece is it Roger Whittaker, 
was a former sort of colonial soldier. I mean, do you think it's sort of a bit, a bit of a healing process as well, a bit of this sort of Western music here? I don't know that it's that, but Roger Whittaker was uh, something special. He was uh, born in Kenya, and during the 1950s Mau Mau emergency, he joined the Kenya Regiment, which was a mostly white unit that fought uh, the Mau Mau. And his parents were grocers in um, Thika, just outside Nairobi. And he's so fondly regarded by Kenyans that they've given him a Kikuyu nickname, which is Waithaka instead of Whittaker. Um, he came out with lots of songs. Apparently, he's very big in Germany and he's uh, quite elderly now. But in the 1970s, he came out with a song called My Land is Kenya, which is like a, an anthem. And it speaks to all of us, whether we are white Kenyans like me or black Kenyans. And they take him very seriously and they regard him to be a country singer star in this country. Um, at the same time, I mean, when I asked people like Sir, Sir Elvis... You know, why is it that a dominantly white genre of music that is something that still is identified as white and plays to white folk in the United States, although it growing, apparently, there are more and more uh, black audiences to this music and singers, the, the reaction is, is one of puzzlement. They say, you know, this is music that crosses boundaries. It's not something that we identify with, uh, you know, uh, the white folk of the States at all. And I think that what it comes down to is that Kenya is still a 75% rural country. A lot of people go back to the farm. Their families are still in the village and on the farms. And although society is changing at breakneck speed, and now a lot of the followers of country and western are urbanites and middle class, they still have a nostalgia for the countryside. And they still go back to the village at Christmas and Easter and any of the holidays. And they still sort of identify themselves a bit like Australians with, you know, the bush, the Texans with, you know, the range. Uh, East Africans, you know, still think of themselves as people who are connected to farms, to cattle. And so, you know, getting out there, sitting on hay bales and drinking pretty expensive single malt whiskey is the sort of thing that they like to do on the weekend. I think it's also because it's identified as quite a conservative genre and it's God-fearing. And, you know, a lot of these lyrics are about one's devotion to God. But it's also about the hardness of life. And, you know, when I said to them, you know, why do the lyrics speak to you? People would say to me, but this is describing what Africa's life, the lives of Africans uh, is today. You know, the uh, Koinangi said, you know, uh, four hungry children and a crop in the field. That's the life of Africans. But then my response to that was, well, isn't that the same as Yorkshiremen or people in the, you know, towns of America or wherever? But that seems to be an argument that a lot of them use, that they really identify with the drama and the melodrama of, of family life and, you know, mothers and disappointing sons and deathbed uh, reconciliations and people who've done time and go on trains to different places. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean it's, it's fascinating why something, something like the blues, blues for example, in America, which is very much an African-American uh, music movement, didn't spread over to Africa in the same way. I mean, why do you think that is uh, compared to country and Western, I suppose? Well, um, uh, some of the people I spoke to uh, identified the sort of great takeoff of popularity of country music 
um, as, as during the 1960s when uh, uh, JFK, Kennedy, organized what was known as the airlift. And a lot of promising young East Africans, particularly Kenyans, went to the United States to university. And Barack Obama's dad, uh, Obama Sr., was one of them. And instead of going to Chicago or Detroit or New York or L.A., you know, they went to small Christian colleges in the southern states. Um, Barack Obama Sr. went to Hawaii. And the argument is that they discovered country music, but not Motown in these places. Um, and, and that's what they brought back. And uh, perhaps they were regarded as too straight-laced and, 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 and conservative, really, um, these young African boys and girls. Um, I, I think that Motown and black American music has had an enormous effect across the continent, and particularly in South Africa, you know, the uh, early popularity of country music has sort of died off, but all of the rest of the imports from America uh, are, are what have, uh, you know, influenced a lot of the local music. Um, and then, you know, once again, in places like Congo, it was Cuban rumba and other strains and tones that, that, that uh, gained popularity. Um, in, in Kenya, you know, there's an amazingly diverse music scene that's grown up particularly with FM radio. And radio here is still tremendously important. Um, but all of us remember growing up when there was just the state broadcaster that would uh, put out these programs on country and western on Saturday afternoons. And so that was the most popular music show in the country. And then once again, as a kid like Koinangi and Sir Elvis, I remember going down to this uh, shop and factory in central Nairobi called Shankadas and Sons, and they were, you know, pressing the LPs, the 33s and the uh, 45s, you know, just as they arrived from the States, and people would be spilling out onto the streets listening to songs by Dolly Parton and others. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Aidan, and we'll, we'll hear some African country and Western to, to send us off. That's it for this week. Remember, if you enjoy what we do here at The Spectator, you can subscribe to the magazine and to our online content. Just join today and you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash TV offer. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. Just click the button at the bottom of this video and tap the bell icon so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for watching and do join us again next week.